Open your Bibles, please, with me to the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. I don't have a high tolerance of pain that a doctor can give me. I've learned to say if a dentist or a doctor says, can you handle pain? Just say, nope, not the kind you know how to do. I mean, kick me in the head in a karate dojo, but do not let a doctor touch me. Um, Close behind that, a close second would be Hallmark movies. Uh, Painful. (laughs) But I do that for the sake of, you know, peace. And uh, another thing, a close third of painful activities I can imagine in my life is stopping for yard sales and antique sales. Um, I do that to show my wife I'm interested in her world, just like she goes with me to Cabela's. And uh, um, so we kind of work with each other on that. So I'm not an expert when I talk about antique shopping or yard sailing, but I know a lot of you enjoy that. And it's probably the joy and the, the fun of the hunt. A little bit of just something you want that you don't know you want until you see it. And, and that's okay. I get that in another way. But some of you know, though, there's the thrill of maybe finding something. You hear radio programs or, ra- or news headlines where someone found something at a yard sale that ended up being worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And maybe it's the thrill of that hunt that gets you into it. I don't know. But you know what it means that something that is merely sentimental or incidental, just sitting around in someone's house, can actually be something monumental. And no one realizes it. And that brings me to a story I want to share with you about the Duke of Alcantara. This is not a person. This is a violin that was worth $800,000. It was 267 years old, this violin. You say, what kind of violin was the Duke of Alcantara? It was a 267-year-old Stradivarius violin. I think I said that right. Did I say that right, Alicia? We'll go with what I said. (laughs) A Stradivarius violin. 267 years old, $800,000. And years ago, this particular violin was donated to UCLA, and it wound up one day in 1967 in the hands of David Margetz. David Margetz was a UCLA student who played second violin for the UCLA String Quartet. He borrowed this violin on August the 2nd, 1967, just to borrow for a rehearsal in nearby Hollywood. Well, I don't know David Margetz, but I do know that night after his rehearsal, he stopped for some groceries on the way home. And in the hurry to get the groceries, he left his car unlocked. And you guessed it. When he came back, The violin was gone. And he was in serious trouble with UCLA, I might add. Surely someone had seen it. Thieves maybe ascertaining the value of this old classic. 
We don't know. It just was gone. It was gone until it was found. You see, when was it found? Now you have to fast forward 27 years from when it went missing that night. And you'll find yourself in 1994. And a violin dealer was repairing a violin in his repair shop. But he had a careful eye. And he realized that he was working on a Stradivarius that was two and a half centuries old. It was worth more than all that he could make in a decade. So he started doing some research, and he found that this violin had been missing from UCLA all this time, and it was now owned by his customer, who was an amateur violinist by the name of Teresa Salvato. And she had gotten the violin in her divorce settlement. You say, well, what do you mean by that? How did, how did, how did her former husband get it? Well, UCLA, of course, was alerted, and they came and claimed the violin, and they found out that this violin was given to Teresa's former husband by his aunt, listen, who found the Stradivarius on the side of a freeway one evening in 1967. Here this thing is worth, at the end of the 60s, $800,000. That's monumental. But people had just been referring to it and treating this violin just in a sentimental way, in an incidental way. I think that story is a great launch for us back to the epistle of Peter. Peter's not talking about something that was monumental and and mistaken as something sentimental, like a violin. No, something much greater on this scale. He's not talking about expensive Stradivarius violins. He's talking about eternal salvation. Something that is so monumental. Listen, but God's people can just act so sentimental about it and incidental, and only think about it every once in a while when it's needed. Peter is breaking his New Testament quote-unquote silence, as we said last week, to equip his readers to suffer well for the persecution that has already broken out and the wave of persecution that will even take Peter's life. As I said in my prayer, the, the clouds were already rolling in, They weren't on the horizon, they were rolling in. The shadow was getting dark and the music was being turned up. Persecution, direct persecution, wave after wave of persecution against Christians is imminent and present. So much so that I said last week, he's going to discuss persecution and suffering in all five chapters, from the opening verses to the closing verses. And we learned last week as we considered the first two verses of this epistle that we are to suffer well because of who we are. But as we come to verses 3 through 9, we're going to see and we're going to hear Peter saying how to suffer well. Not just because of who you are, but suffer well because of what you have. Look at verse 3. 
as I read through verse 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Listen. If anyone could have lost their salvation, it would have been Peter, right? I mean, you think Peter is the one who, uh, looking in the eyeballs right after he denies Jesus, that's Peter. He's the one who told Jesus, you can't suffer, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. If anyone could have lost their salvation, just these two scenes alone, on a human level, we would think, well, it's probably Peter, I guess. But Peter received, in return, grace. And I find it instructive that someone who had failed so deeply is writing these words to us this morning, or that we are reading this morning. He is the one writing this amazing section of his epistle to assure you that nothing coming your way in the realm of suffering and persecution can shake your salvation. Nothing. Persecution, as our Lord said in the parable of the soils, persecution, resistance will show who's truly saved and who's not. But persecution can in no way rock the salvation, destroy the salvation, cancel the salvation that the truly redeemed are experiencing. That's why Peter's writing this. And I see as we go through verses 3 through 9 that he is going to just simply give you three realities that anchor you in suffering. He's going to focus on what you have. And by the way, the suffering he's keying them up for is not a hangnail. It's not a, a hook on your golf shot. It's not having to lose a couple pounds. This is direct resistance and reaction against you because you identify with Jesus Christ in a hostile culture. That's what he's setting them up for. And he's going to give you simply 
three anchors for you in your suffering. The first anchor that has to do with what you have is this. Number one, God himself initiated your salvation. You got that? You got that after last Sunday? It's God himself who initiates, who initiated your salvation. I'm embarrassed to say that I don't know how to build things. I'm not real good at fixing a lot of things. If you were to go to the corner house behind our church property here, the one that uh, some men and trustees are, are, are renovating, I mean, it's gutted down to the studs both levels, and rooms are being moved, and fireplaces are going away. It's being redesigned, and it's going to be exciting because we can use it for ministry. We can use it for missionaries. We can use it for potential interns, summer interns from colleges or seminaries. The sky's the limit, and they're going to have a great place to land. But I remember listening in as Fred Crothers and some of the trustees and Rick Ward were talking with Dave Krause, and, and there have been some very dangerous stairs in that house for decades not meeting code. And as these guys talk about this, you know what it's doing to me. It's going, what does that mean? And, uh, but they know exactly what it means. And so Dave Krause, the, the ever-present engineer, is drafting out dimensions for the new stairs, the direction they're supposed to go and this and that. And then Fred and Rick and the others are creating those stairs and and they, needless to say, those are in now. It meets code, and they're better than they've ever been in the life of that house. And solid. Trust me. You don't want me in any part of that project. As solid as it is right now, if I were in charge of that, from the design to the implementation, I promise you it would involve thumbtacks and duct tape. All right? You don't want me building something that you have to depend on. And you know what? We don't want to depend on a man, including ourselves when it comes to our salvation we we don't accomplish our salvation i wouldn't want to be the one who accomplishes my salvation because it wouldn't stand god is the one who initiated your salvation and what peter's doing in the opening words of verse three is this he's pointing at god And then he's pointing at you, the reader, and he's celebrating three realities. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's saying, look, look at your God who saved you, who initiated your salvation. Number one, he is a saving God. He calls him, he refers to him as the God and Father. Are you ready? Are you expecting the next phrase? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like, he is a God? He is God, right? He has a God? I mean, what, what do we do with that wording? It's genius. By the way, Peter had heard the Son communicating with the Father directly. You know, he was in the room, in the garden. He also heard or was in close proximity of and heard the report of the Father audibly speaking from heaven about the Son. Uh, Peter was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter had seen firsthand the interaction between God the Father and God the Son. 
And when he says the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you understand that he is affirming with that introductory statement both the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus by saying God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus Christ in his humanity had a God and it was his Father. But in identifying the word, with the word Father, he's identifying him as a member of the Trinity with the Son. So he's affirming both Christ's humanity and deity with this title. My mind goes back to John chapter 20 as our Lord had just come out of the grave. And he says um, in John, verse 17 of John 20, Go to my brethren, the disciples, and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Sweet, sweet confession. And Peter's saying, blessed be the God and Father of our, and then he uses all the titles of Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means the one we owe allegiance to. Jesus, the one who is the Savior of our sin. And Christ, the one promised throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah. Wow. You see, what what we see here is the saving Father sent the saving Son. Peter's saying, do you understand who initiated your salvation? He is a saving God. But secondly, he's not just a saving God, he's a merciful God. It says in verse 3, who, and here we have the second according to, and we're only three verses into this epistle. We saw according dealing with the Father up at the end of verse 1 and beginning of verse 2. The readers are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So here in verse 3, we're talking about the Father again. We're talking about what the Father has done and what it was in according with. It was according to his great mercy. He is a merciful God. See, what does it mean to have mercy? Well, it means that you deserve something that I'm withholding from you. Or as one person put it, mercy is God's kindness to outsiders that deserve to remain outsiders and making them insiders. It's taking the, 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 the repulsively sinful, unholy humanity in rebellion against the creator and his created order that we read about in Romans 1 and saying, I'm going to rescue some of those. That's mercy. Charles Spurgeon said, Pardon of sin must ever be an act of pure mercy. And therefore, to that attribute, the awakened sinner flies. End quote. Or the Puritan Thomas Watson summarized it in one sentence. The mercies of God make a sinner proud, but a saint humble. Mercy. I deserve wrath, but he's giving me mercy. You say, well, okay, so what's, what's the expression of this mercy, though? What is the expression? Well, it says here in verse 3, here's the expression of this great mercy, not just any mercy, his great mercy. It has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This mercy is expressed in, the, in, in, in this manner. He's caused us to be rebirthed. This word that Peter is using here in verse 3 is only used one other time in the entire New Testament, this particular Greek word. The concept's not 
limited to this space, as we'll see in a moment. But the word is, he, he uses the same word in the same chapter. And these are the only two occurrences in the New Testament. It's in verse 23. He says, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. We'll get to that verse later. But this concept, this theology of a new birth is not unique to Peter. What it does tell us, though, is that God, in his mercy, when we didn't deserve it, did you catch that word? Caused us to be born again. He didn't say, raise your hand if you want to be born again. He initiates that new life that comes to you so you can see your sin, so that you can repent of your sin and have faith in Jesus Christ. All of that is a mercy. It's not two-thirds God and one-third us. God started the whole deal, and it's before time began, according to the end of verse 1 and beginning of verse 2. You were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Who's chosen? The ones that will receive mercy. It's right there. It's fascinating. You can put it this way. We were chosen according to God's, the Father's foreknowledge in eternity past so that we would be birthed at a point in time in the present. This is exactly what we find in the Gospel of John. Hold your finger here and go with me to John chapter 1. I want you to see this again. We all know and love verse 12 of John chapter 1 in the prologue of this gospel. John 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, that seems like an action on the part of the receiver, um, the one who's going to receive eternal life. They have to receive him, Jesus. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who, and here's another action, believe in his name. You say, well, that means I, I have to be wise enough to make the choice. I have to be clever enough to make the commitment, right? No, the verse doesn't end there. Verse 13 explains why verse 12 happens. Who were born, there's our theological concept, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, and the last three words tell the rest of the story, but of God. God is the one who initiates this. And and you hold your finger there, or or keep your finger in 1 Peter and go with me to John chapter 3. Remember this? Jesus said to Nicodemus, verse 3 of chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, here's our concept, born again or or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's not talking about a destination at the end of a trip of life, at at the end of the journey. It's right now. Unless God has opened your eyes, you can't see the king. You can't see his kingdom. You can't see the created design of the creator. And therefore, you can't respond to it. Nicodemus is scratching his head, verse 4. He says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, That which is born of the Spirit is spirits. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Hmm. 
Verse 8 kind of tells us how this happens. The wind, as an example, blows where it wishes, and you hear of it. You don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Say, how do you know if someone's been born again? Because they can see now. Because they are responding to the gospel message. The wind has blown. The Spirit has moved. He is a saving God. He is a merciful God. And by the way, this whole new birth thing is not unique to John or Peter. Even our Lord's brother, James, in James chapter 1, verse 18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. See, it's a consistent message throughout Scripture. And being born, just like your first birth to human parents, being born again points to your new name, your new identity, your new citizenship, your new resources, your new inheritance, your new potential, your new character, your new awareness, your new affections. I told Pastor Michael this morning before Sunday school that Piper Joy, his new daughter, is a Michigander. And he can't do anything about that. That's what it is. My son and his wife had a gender reveal last weekend, and we're going to have a grandson this summer. And they're going to, have, they're going to give birth to a grandson in, in God's kindness. And an identity is birthed. See, what's the result of this birth? The result of this birth, it says in verse 3, is a living hope. A living hope. I love what Peter is doing in this epistle. Just in the opening remarks here. We're not all the way through verse 3 yet. And he knows the, 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 sh- the, the, the shadow of persecution is getting foreboding and dark. And the storm is rolling in. And the stench of death, literally and figuratively, seem to just be encroaching these Christians. You know what Peter does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He's always talking about living stuff in this epistle. Everything he wants to talk about is living. He's wanting to communicate the dynamic of life for those who are gospel people, even when death is is, is pressing in and persecution is canceling us out. Everything's a lie. In verse, chapter 1, verse 3, he's talking about a living hope. In verse 23 of chapter 1, he's talking about the living word. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, he's going to say, you come to Jesus as to a living stone, which, been, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones. I love this. Everything's alive in there. We get to chapter 4. Verse 5, they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. This concept of living. Wow. It's good news. He's saying here in chapter 3, you know what you're born to? A living hope, not a dead hope. Not a dead hope. It's not just that we, ex- we, we, we embrace this new life and and we, we place our faith in Jesus. And, and we just have to wait now to the end. 
to experience life. No, eternal life is not just talking about duration. It's talking about the depth and the quality of the life he gives you now. You are alive now if you've been born again. You're alive right now. Paul would write in Colossians chapter 1, if then or since you've been raised with Christ, it's a done deal. He says in verse 3 of Colossians 1, or uh, verse 4, Christ, who is our life, you're alive. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, he has raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now. You've been born to this, this living hope. Why? Because God is a saving God and God is a merciful God. But thirdly, God is a satisfied God. He is a satisfied God. It says here at the end of verse 3 that you've been born again to a living hope. And look at this phrase. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, ultimately, our hope, as those who've been born again, is a person, capital P. It's Jesus, who is the first fruit, the first who will lead an army in victory over death. One commentator says, the resurrection is the Father's amen to when Christ said it's finished on the cross. Or Paul puts it this way in Romans 4:25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Or in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching at Pentecost. Listen to what he said. God raised Jesus up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Our God is a saving God. Because he's a merciful God. And he's a satisfied God. The sacrifice has been paid. Death has been killed. Jesus is alive. I like what the old preacher Harry Ironside. How he put it. He says, if anyone's ever to be kept out of heaven for my sins, it'll have to be Jesus. For he took my sins upon himself and made himself responsible for them. But... Jesus is in heaven already, never to be turned out. So now I know that I am secure. So here's my question. Here's my question. It's simply this. Have you been born again? Can you see the king? Can you see the kingdom? Are you blown away? That God, in his infinite holiness, that even angels can't look, they cover their faces with their two of their six wings we see in Isaiah 6. They don't even want to look at his holiness. Are you blown away by the fact that not only is God that holy, but for some reason, he comes for sinners like you? And so many times his grace and mercy comes looking for you when you're not looking for them. Can you also not just see God, but can, can, can you see now your sin? Can you see that those 
Sleepless nights of guilt make sense because you have sinned against God. And not just through acts, not just through seasons of your life, but there's, there's a growing awareness that there's something wrong with you. You find yourself excusing it. You find yourself trying to dull it. You find yourself trying to deafen yourself to the conviction of your conscience that God's given to you. But even through all of your efforts at muffling it, it's still God's agent. It's a mercy calling out to you that there's a salvation available to a sinner like you. Can you see it? Because if you can see it, you run towards it today. You place your faith in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sin, because you can see it. And you ask him to give you that eternal life that he offers so freely. You turn from your sin. Stop being your king. And come to Christ. If you could see it, accept it. And if you accept it, I rejoice with you. And you've been born again. It's the only reason you could see it. But he calls to you to see it and believe it. And even that faith is a gift. By grace, you've been saved by grace through faith, and that's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. You say, wow. God himself initiates salvation. It's been two Sundays of messages on that topic. You say, that's great, but I'm getting crushed here. I'm, I'm getting canceled as a disciple of Jesus here in the West right now. We are. And I'm a little nervous about what I see coming. And everything's always changing down here. Is there some way to be sure that this salvation, this new birth, is secure? And the answer is yes. And you have to come back in two weeks. And I'll tell you how secure it is. But I wanted to preach the gospel, just the first part of this passage this morning. And I'm saying to you in this room, no matter whether you're a member or not, I'm saying to those who are watching online right now with me in these moments or years from now, I'm asking you, are you born again? If not, would you allow me to love you enough to say you must believe in Jesus Christ? You must embrace him as your Savior and as your Lord. Full disclosure, spoiler alert, everything will change in your life. Oh, and come into the family of God and get persecuted with the rest of us. Because you're going to see as we come back to this text in our next study and finish this off, you're going to see that even suffering listen, becomes a jewel that adorns your neck and beautifies you and encircles you with a power that even Paul will say you, you can't put into words. You can't put into words. But today, 
The question is, are you born again? If you're not, here's your instructions. I'm going to wait up front after the service. I want you to come talk to me. I'll take an open Bible with you. Ladies, if you come forward and you need to talk to someone, I'll send you with a lady, my wife, or, or someone else. Um, and they'll open a Bible with you. And we will show you how you can be born again, how you can believe in Jesus. The fact is, if you're already seeing it and you're saying, I must, I must be saved, I got some good news for you. The Spirit's already working in your heart. Or you wouldn't see it at all. Come forward and talk to me when this service dismisses. I won't embarrass you. I'll speak privately with you. I want to talk to you. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, Father, that you are a saving God. You're a merciful God, and you are a satisfied God. You're you're satisfied with the suffering of Christ and his tasting death for those who will believe. And you offer this new birth. I pray that your spirit will blow now on hearts, in the room, even through technology. And I pray that many here will repent and believe and have this eternal life this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.